It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So I've got a plan A and I've got a plan B. Looking ahead to my Sunday show. Plan A is if there is no verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Plan B is if there is a verdict today in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. This is pretty common in live television. You have a big event that's kind of on the horizon that would change, for example, what you might lead with. My not-so-subtle way of reminding you that Media Buzz airs uh, 11 a.m. Eastern on Sunday. Uh, but it actually, you know, it's it's a little harder than it looks because you have to book different guests and you have to get uh, different scripts ready and headlines and so forth. But um, I've had to make changes, you know, 20 minutes before airtime. So this is a luxury. It's only Friday. And speaking of only Friday, Elmo must be very disappointed uh, by the latest news. The CPAC conference, which will be held early next year, has informed Elmo and Big Bird and Bert and Ernie that they will not be welcome at the conference uh, in February in Florida. Why? Because Sesame Street did uh, a segment or a show or teamed up with CNN to do, uh, you ought to go out and get the COVID-19 vaccine. The show has been pushing vaccines or promoting them since the 1970s. I don't think Elmo or even Grover or Cookie Monster was really planning to go But somehow it just seems a little bit less of a sunny day on Sesame Street. Uh, FDA early this morning approving booster shots for all adults, speaking of COVID. And, you know, I'm very glad to see that happen. But what took so long? You know, President Biden came out months ago and said, you know, when these booster shots were available and they're found to be safe, we're talking here about the Pfizer one, uh, everybody should be able to get it. And then the CDC said, well, you know, only if you're in this category, that category. All it does is create widespread confusion. I don't think anything has changed materially um, before this FDA ruling. And it just seems like these agencies, they're always like a month or two late. Uh, you know they're eventually going to do it, but they drag their feet and drag their feet. And it just drives me nuts. Any, you know, in reality, a lot of states are ignoring the CDC guidance. And in reality, anybody who wants this booster shot can probably get it. And that's good. I'm not saying anybody should be forced to get it, but it should be an option for those who care enough to try to want to, you know, get their antibody count back up. But it just, especially with what's now, I would say, a surge, because the number of daily average new cases now hit about 94, 95,000. It had been 70,000. So it's a 33% increase in just the last two weeks. So now boosters will be more available. You know, this really ticked me off. Uh, there was a confirmation hearing for President Biden's uh, nominee for controller of the currency. Her name is Saul Omarova. I hope I'm not mangling that. And Republican Senator John Kennedy uh, began his questioning this way. He said, I don't know whether I should call you professor or comrade. And his beef was that Omarova once belonged to a group called the Young Communists. Why? Because she grew up in the former Soviet Union, uh, Kazakhstan to be precise. And she said, look, not only am I not a communist, not only do I reject the communist philosophy, but it was very hard on my family. And that's why we came to America. 
So to throw that back at her, you know, you don't like her credentials or you think she has a socialist philosophy or whatever, fine. Make your case. But as she said, I couldn't control where I was born. And it was mandatory to belong to one of these Soviet groups. So I just think that was a low blow. All right, I guess for number one, we ought to deal with the thing that just kind of sort of happened, and that is, after months, I mean months of wrangling, the House of Representatives passing the big spending bill, one and a three-quarter trillion dollars, build back better, Democrats only, by a pretty narrow margin, 220 to 213. Nancy Pelosi got every Democrat except one to vote for it. All the Republicans were against And you might say this is a pretty big victory because, you know, finally the deal that they made where they passed the infrastructure a couple weeks ago and now they get the bill that the liberals want um, was pulled off. And if it hadn't, they didn't have the votes and they couldn't do it, it certainly would be a defeat. But it's always a but with these things. This is why covering Congress is so infuriating. It's just another procedural step because... The real action now shifts to the Senate, and we're back to the whole 50-50, what does Kirsten Sinema want, what does Joe Manchin want, and then if, I think eventually, probably Christmas Eve, if I had to bet, the Senate approves, it'll be a very different version of this bill, because they're going to take out the paid family leave and a bunch of other things that the House progressives want, and so this gives them, uh, the people in the House, a symbolic victory. See, we voted for this, and then we had to compromise. But then... The Senate passed bill will have to go back to the House, and the House will have to swallow whatever changes the senators make, the 50 Democratic senators, in order to get Manchin and Cinema on board. The only real drama here is that the uh, bill was supposed to be voted on last night, but then Kevin McCarthy stood up and decided to talk, and he kept on talking, and he wound up talking for eight hours and 32 minutes. The House Minority Leader finally was done. He said, personally, I didn't think I could go this long. About 5 a.m. this morning. With that, Madam Speaker, I yield back. Um, Now, the House doesn't have a filibuster. So it wasn't really a filibuster. It was just kind of filibuster light. But apparently the Speaker, the Majority Leader, and Minority Leader have the ability to invoke what's called a magic moment where they get to stand up and talk as long as they like. Now, what did Kevin McCarthy accomplish with this? Other than talking about not just a whole bunch of Republican points about big government and the Democrats and this bill and how we don't need it and so forth. He talked about anything that popped into his head. Um, He talked about history. He talked about um, just some personal stuff. And you got to tip your hat in this respect. He broke the record. He gave what is believed to be the longest speech in the history of the House. Well, at least dating to 1909, Pelosi had broken the record in 2010 with, uh, I don't know, a seven or eight hour speech. So occasionally they do this. Um, Now, all that happened was he delayed the vote until this morning, the $1.75 trillion vote. I know some of you are mad at me, think I spoke too long, but I've had enough. America has had enough. So it's symbolic. He can then go back, you know, he, for the next year he can say, I tried to stop this. I stood up. I was on my feet for eight and a half hours, uh, but the Democrats did what they were going to do. Um, so what's amazing to me is 
that this is what passes for high drama in Washington when, you know, at least with a filibuster, you're trying to prevent the other side from acting on legislation. Here, McCarthy knew it's just a talkathon. It's just, you know, a way to seize the spotlight. But I guess he had fun. Uh, the Democrats also had fun taking shots at him. For example, uh, Democratic Rep. Jamie Raskin tweeting, it is a feat of epic proportions to speak for four hours straight. This is obviously while it was still going on. And not produce a single memorable phrase, original insight, or even a joke. McCarthy thinks he is a wit, but so far he has proved he's only half right. Okay, boom, zing. But there actually was a substantive thing here that I think will affect the uh, debate in the Senate, which is yesterday we got the CBO score. So this is the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, and every time there's a, peach, a spending bill, CBO looks at it and provides. And, you know, what happens is if the Republicans are in charge, they don't like the CBO score. If the Democrats are in charge, they don't like the CBO score. And what CBO found with this build back better climate change, uh, expand Medicare, child tax credit, and on and on and on piece of legislation, is that over the next 10 years, it will add $367 billion to the deficit. Now, Dems will point out and say, well, that figure doesn't account for the revenue that may, keyword here, may, be generated by tougher IRS enforcement. I mean, this is a, that is such a scam. You know, first of all, the people who would be affected by it are the people who are making lots and lots of money. The people who are making lots and lots of money can afford all kinds of accountants. And those accountants can always find loopholes and ways to shelter much of the income. So the idea that there's just this gold mine that's going to be um, unearthed by hiring a bunch more IRS agents uh, is just is just a fantasy. Also, if this stays in the bill, the, Fed, the federal government might save $160 billion on prescription drug prices by allowing Medicare to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies. But that's been, both parties have tried to get that for a long time. It always seems to get knocked out. So now the action shifts to the Senate. So this whole thing, you know, while certainly if it had blown up, would have been a big setback, as I said, you know, ends up going back to the Senate anyway. Here we are in late November. Um, it's, you know, it's going to go on and on and on. Does it even pass by the end of next month? I don't know. Uh, I do know that if it does pass, the Democrats can claim victory. And it's, you know, look, it's a lot of money. And so it's not... Uh, symbolic, if the Democrats, with only Democratic votes, can push this through Congress, President Biden signs it, he will have passed three major pieces of legislation costing a whole lot of money, which of course raises questions about inflation as well. So I've got some other uh, segments here that all will have to do with Biden and how he's doing and how he's not doing. And it's interesting to me. Uh, you know, it's almost like everybody defaults to writing about the president. Uh, when there's no Trump news, when there's no verdict in the Rittenhouse case, when, you know, all the other possibilities are exhausted. Um, but there's some thoughtful stuff here. So let's move on to number two. Politico has, I think it's actually a pretty revealing piece about Biden's management style. And uh, it points out the piece points out that Joe Biden, for 36 years, was a member of what likes to the, the uh, chamber that likes to style itself the world's greatest deliberative body. And what Politico is saying is, you know, Biden hasn't been able to shed that habit, so everything takes forever for him to reach a decision. 
And here's the example. And here's the lead. The decision would be soon, then it was imminent. At one point it was going to come in four days. Now it will be Thanksgiving. Maybe. President Biden has been wrestling for weeks with whether to reappoint the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, or replace him with Lyle Brainard, Democrat and economist who served on the Fed board since 2014. Now, one argument against Powell is that he's a Republican picked by Donald Trump. Usually you have an election, you have a chance to change the Fed chair. Most presidents would do that. And there are arguments on both sides. Um, for example, would it spook the markets to change uh, the head of the Federal Reserve right now? Would it have an impact on the negotiations for this big, nearly $2 trillion bill? And there's um, a lot of disagreement within the White House, sources close to the process, so the president's still deciding. Uh, some progressive Democrats who speak frequently to Ron Klain are resisting. Uh, saying they want a Fed chairman more committed to toughening financial regulation and addressing climate change. If I was smarter, I would understand what a Fed chair has to do with climate change. I do understand the financial regulation part. Uh, but here's the deal, as some like to say. Biden has continued to let the argument play out according to three unnamed administration officials. Among his considerations, as I said, would this affect the, um, the Build Back Better bill? Uh, would it cause some senators to pump the brakes on signing off on this big bill uh, out of fear that, um, you know, there would be too much money pumped into the economy and inflation fears? So what the larger point here is about the president's style, um, he can be stubborn once his mind is made up. But uh, much to the dismay of some aides, says Politico, his decision making can seem endless creating a vacuum quickly filled by beltway guessing games and runaway narratives. The effects are visible at the granular level, too. Inside the White House, deliberations can be glacial. Even the scheduling of the president's day can be a painstaking process, with Biden habitually running late from meeting to meeting due to lengthy deliberations. Um, Biden likes to let these arguments play out. Last week, the White House suggested a pick would come within days. This is about the Federal Reserve. Um, Biden himself updated that when he was up in New Hampshire, uh, touting the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Here's an interesting graph. He seeks out minutiae but loathes jargon, flashing anger at aides who don't deliver information in methods easily translatable for voters. His Socratic journey, as some aides call it, can wreak havoc on his West Wing schedule with decisions stretching weeks beyond their due date. Well, that doesn't sound like a very decisive president. I mean, with Donald Trump, you had the opposite. He would schedule a meeting to decide some initiative. Was he going to back this out of the other thing? Uh, and then he would tweet about it, make the decision before the meeting could took place. I have a couple examples of that in my book about the first year of the Trump administration. Uh, or, you know, Trump would just uh, make a staff decision to fire somebody and fire them on Twitter. So he was he sort of represents one end of the spectrum, which is he did what, what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, even though it would send his aides often into a tizzy. Biden is sort of at the other end of the spectrum, which was a, he is very inclusive and they've got meetings and they've got meetings to decide meetings, uh, even to decide the schedule. And everybody gets to say on and on and on and on and on until he finally makes a decision. And here's where I think it actually matters, because otherwise a lot of this is just, you know, sort of inside the White House stuff. And that is by letting the negotiations over the infrastructure bill go on and on and on. I think he really kind of robbed himself of a political victory. Yeah, yes, undeniable. He got 
Mitch McConnell and 18 Republican senators uh, to vote for an infrastructure bill, which a lot of the media geniuses said would never happen. But by the time the, the bill was uh, ended up being freed from the hostage situation that the House progressives had imposed, everybody was sick of it. it. It just seemed like old news. It seemed like the Democrats couldn't get anything done. It seemed like Joe Biden was not in control of his own party. So delay uh, hurts you, even if you eventually get there, because, you know, the world moves on and everybody's you know, to be a strong leader, you can't let other people deliberate forever. Now, here's a related piece, New York Times, uh, moderate conservative David Brooks, actually arguing uh, that Joe Biden is successful. That was the headline in the Times piece, even though he knows that politically speaking, uh, Biden is having a tough time right now. So here's the Brooks argument. As President Biden had mostly economic levers to bridge this sort of cultural civil war. He championed three gigantic pieces of legislation to create a more equal and united society. The COVID stimulus bill, infrastructure, of course, and now uh, the current bill, which is still a substantial distance from passing. All these bills, in Brooks's view, were written to funnel money to parts of the country that were less educated, less affluent, left behind. Uh, There's an estimate here that 80% of the new jobs created by the infrastructure bill will not require a college degree. And and Biden talks about that. It's a blue collar bill, not need a college degree because he knows that that is a constituency uh, that is suspicious of Democrats that think that the Democratic Party just plays to the elites. Why would anybody think that? Oh, I don't know. Um, These were bold endeavors. Uh, Maybe they will cause inflation to uh, rise further as books concedes, but he, he says that trade-off would be worth it to prevent a national rupture. Um, he says the stimulus package, you know, everybody's forgotten about that, that was $1.9 trillion. Um, that's been pretty successful. It heated up the overall economy. Look, we are talking about growth of about, could be as much as 5% this quarter. Unemployment rate, unemployment rate has dropped to, what was it, 3.6%. 500,000 plus jobs created last month. Retail sales surging. In fact, it's the fact that people are buying a lot of stuff that is um, fueling the supply chain problem because it's hard for retailers to get all this stuff in stock um, because you got to get some of this stuff overseas and everything's backed up at the ports and all that. So, Um, The infrastructure law will boost American productivity for five years to come. So David Brooks has a very positive take on this. And he says, look, presidents are judged by history, not by the distractions of the moment. Did the president and the the person in the Oval Office address the core problem of the moment? He says the Biden administration will pass that test. Sure, there have been failures, he says, the shameful Afghanistan withdrawal, failing to renounce the excesses of the cultural left, you think, But this administration will be judged by whether it reduced inequality, spread opportunity, and created the basis for greater national unity. I must say, I don't really uh, see a whole lot of national unity right now. Um, Maybe that changes. You know, I think I think Brooks mentions Obamacare as something that was that took forever, was very unpopular when it passed. And now, you know, you can't touch it. It's the law of the land. And it got a lot more popular once people started to feel the, be- the benefits. Brooks says he doesn't care if the Democrats lose the midterms. He knows that's very likely. But he cares about all these laws like child tax being made temporarily 
to make the budget numbers go, look good. And there, he's just off. Because the budget numbers look good. The reason the budget numbers look good is that that's the only way to get people like Manchin and Cinema on board. The, if you make these programs permanent, they don't want any part of that. If you give them a few years, then at least they say, well, you're not completely blowing up the deficit, and we can re Congress can revisit it in a few years. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Uh, related story here, number three, Ron Brownstein writing The Atlantic, says that um, to Biden and Democrats who support Biden, working with the GOP is good policy and good politics. Look, this one thing that Joe Biden ran on, it was reaching across the aisle, unity, bipartisanship, lowering the temperature, and he was able to do that on the infrastructure bill. But that's kind of the exception. I talked at length yesterday about the censure of Paul Gosar over that uh, horrible, in my view, kill AOC video. Yes, it was just a video, but look how hot things got in the House uh, the other day. And then uh, McCarthy coming out and saying, well, we're going to pay it back when we take over. Marjorie Taylor Greene will get her committee assignments back. Paul Gosar will get his committee assignments back. And we'll do to some Democrats what you've done to Republicans. Really, really hot stuff. And what Brownstein is arguing is that, you know what? While Biden was elected to restore a sense of normalcy and all that, um, working with Republicans may be not so good for the Democrats. This is interesting. Hardly any Democratic strategist begrudged Biden taking a victory lap uh, over the infrastructure bill. But at the same time, the issue isn't just Biden. Um, Democratic House candidates last year spent a lot of money advertising their willingness to work with Republicans, but Republicans ran ads that painted the Democrats as dangerous radicals. Um, and so the argument here is the following. If one party is beating up the other party, mainly the Republicans beating up the Democrats, and yet the Democrats are just saying, hey, you know, we just want to all hold hands and pass things that we can all agree on, that is seeding a big advantage. I haven't really heard anybody make this argument. I've heard people say that Joe Biden is naive about getting Republican support for anything other than this one bill. Um, but, you know, Brownstein points out every Republican sent this week back the congressional resolution to overturn Biden's mandate about large employers, which is, I guess, legally on hold right now, requiring their workers to receive a COVID vaccine. So he's kind of saying that the Republicans are playing hardball, uh, filibustering everything, including nominees, and Joe Biden is playing softball. I don't know. I think the American people like when both parties come together to get stuff done. Does that happen a lot these days? No, which is what made the infrastructure outcome uh, so unusual. And in my view, at least, you know, we will now spend a bunch of money on things that most people agree with. And both parties agree with. Trump couldn't get an infrastructure bill. That was the joke about infrastructure week. Roads, bridges, broadband, ports, transit, rail. Maybe boring, but it will mean jobs. All right, number four. A New York State judge ruling yesterday that the New York Times must temporarily cease publication of articles based on internal dom uh, documents from Project Veritas. That's the James O'Keefe group. Uh, that group is suing the Times for defamation. And the Times is pushing back against this. And, and i got to push back against this. Leaving aside for a moment um, what Project Veritas is doing, I'll get to that in a second, 
I thought we settled this in 1971 when the Nixon administration temporarily stopped the New York Times from publishing the Pentagon Papers and it went all the way to the Supreme Court and it was, it was a victory for press freedom that you can't have prior restraint. It goes against the First Amendment. Nevertheless, some state judge in Westchester County, New York, ruled that, uh, well, you know, we've got to hold off here. And what's at issue is the Times has been publishing internal memos of Project Veritas written by the group's lawyers uh, advising the group on what it can publish and not publish without running afoul of federal law. Well, look, every media organization consults its lawyers on dicey stuff. If we publish this, could we be sued for libel? If we publish this, could we be sued for um, publishing classified information? And so a lawyer for Project Veritas uh, said that, suggested, I don't see any evidence here, that federal authorities leaked these legal memos to the New York Times after obtaining them during that raid that got so much attention on the home of James O'Keefe. Maybe that did come from the feds. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but it's a little bit ironic since Project Veritas uses hidden camera videos and undercover uh, efforts to get dirt on liberal news organizations or mainstream news organizations, now crying foul that anybody, in this case the New York Times, is revealing uh, its internal workings. Uh, that doesn't make it right, but obviously there's a little bit of payback here. Now, a spokeswoman for the New York Times says these legal memos that the Times has been publishing were obtained by the paper prior to the FBI executing its search warrants at the homes of James O'Keefe and others. So they're saying, look, you're barking up the wrong tree here. We didn't get this stuff from the FBI raid. We already had it. Uh, but nevertheless, on Wednesday, uh, the project went to court and filed this motion, which I guess has now been at least temporarily granted, to block the New York Times from publishing these internal legal advice given to uh, this group. And all this has to do with the diary of the president's daughter, Ashley Biden which Project Veritas says it obtained uh, from a source, perfectly legally, didn't publish, notified the authorities, and it's hard for me to see what the legal case here is about. Uh, if they had rushed this into print and obtained, you know, even if it had obtained it from somebody who stole it from some someplace, there's a long history here of even you could say Francis Haugen obtaining all these documents when she worked at Facebook then giving them to the media. The media, it may be wrong. It may even be criminal. This goes back again to the Pentagon Papers uh, case for somebody to improperly obtain classified information, internal corporate documents, you name it. But it's not illegal for journalists to receive such matters as long as the journalists didn't have a hand in breaking the law. So all this has to be sorted out, um, but now there is at least a temporary restraining order, which as a First Amendment guy does not make me happy. And finally, story number five, you know, when nobody has anything else to write about, and I've been there, they talk about the 2024 election. So here's a piece by Nashville Review's Rich Lowry talking about if Biden doesn't run again, which a lot of people, a lot of Democrats think he won't, he would be 82. Uh, how would it play out if Kamala Harris runs against Pete Buttigieg. So Lowry says, look, uh, Kamala Harris is very unpopular, 28% approval rating in this USA Today poll. 
Uh, it's difficult, he says, to rate that low without getting indicted or suffering some other embarrassing scandals. Her allies complain that she's being treated unfairly because she's a woman of color. I talked about this at length this week in the unfair backlash against that CNN story on the vice president. The fixation on race and gender, says Rich, plays much better with the left-wing activist class than with the public. The simpler explanation, he says, for Harris's woes is that she's a below-average politician serving under an unpopular president. The second part may be true. The first part is up to you to decide. You know, she's been vice president for 10 months. It's hard being the number two because you're only carrying out the tasks that your boss gives you, as Joe Biden knows all too well. Now, Pete Buttigieg, says Lowry, has had a happier tenure. You know, this guy came out of nowhere. Mayor of South Bend, uh, did well in the primaries. He was one of the last to drop out, won the Iowa caucuses, got a cabinet position, uh, as a result, and now he's got a lot of money to spend as transportation secretary thanks to the infrastructure bill. Uh, but, you know, you knew there was a but coming uh, from the conservative magazine. Rich Lowry says he embodies the party's growing strength among college-educated whites. He's smooth, credentialed, hyper-articulate, and a quick study who knows enough, sometimes just enough, to charm and impress journalists and other white-collar creative types. Uh, there's a problem there. Uh, if a management consultant were to design a progressive white Democrat in a bottle, the result would look a lot like Buttigieg, himself a former management consultant. I think he worked for Kinsey, McKinsey Company. Um, it's becoming increasingly clear, though, and this is an interesting point, that the Democratic Party's new base among college-educated voters is a trap if it's pursued to the exclusion of non-college-educated voters. That's why I was talking about blue-collar jobs earlier with this infrastructure law. Um, and it's true. One of the, and one of the reasons that Pete Buttigieg did fade in the primaries was because he couldn't get any black support. So if there's a black candidate who actually also had trouble getting black support when she was running for president in the primaries, and you have Buttigieg, who journalists like and a lot of college-educated people like and is very, very good on TV and has really done well for himself, um, but can he change the lack of black support? Uh, the better Democratic future, says Lowry, is Eric Adams, the mayor-elect of New York, because he's an African-American former cop with a hard knocks upbringing, which gives him working class street cred. Well, he hasn't taken office yet, and we'll see how much uh, conservatives like Eric Adams, when he is actually the mayor of New York City, which begins next January 1st. That's when a new mayor gets inaugurated. I know this from covering New York. And I think Eric Adams is an intriguing guy. Uh, he, he's not just a crazy left winger. Uh, but, you know, when you're about to take office, you're full of promise. When you take office and you inevitably disappoint some people, then maybe not so much, but we shall see. Maybe he'll be very successful. I wonder if he's thought about running for president. Everybody who gets one of these jobs thinks about running for president at some point. They look at the guy who's doing it and say, you know what? I could do better than that. Well, I hope you have a great weekend coming up. I'll remind you again that Media Buzz airs Sunday morning on Fox 11 Eastern. I would love if you would subscribe to our podcast here at Apple iTunes or on your Amazon device. I'll be working this weekend, but we'll see you back here Monday with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.